0: but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicuslive for tickets.
2: Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by DraftKings. Start this football season by winning $2 million. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Use code HANGUP to play free. For a shot at $2 million in the Week One $10 million maker. Go to DraftKings.com and use the promo code HANGUP. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of August 31st, 2015. On this week's show, we'll discuss whether college sports are changing for the better, with schools now paying players full cost of attendance, or if schools are just figuring out new ways to be evil, like Virginia Tech trying to fine its players for personal foul penalties. We'll also interview 81 year old track star Irene Obera, who just won the 100 meters, 200 meters, 80 meter hurdles, 200 meter hurdles, the long jump, and a couple relays at the World Masters Athletics Championships. And we'll review the latest season of HBO's Hard Knocks, starring American hero J.J. Watt and the Houston Texans' cuss-tastic head coach Bill O'Brien. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, a coach who's known for teaching his young charges the importance of American curse words. Hello, Stefan
3: get your shit together girls mm-hmm. we're going out there we're taking the fucking pink panthers down
2: <laughs> his mic is hot mm-hmm. his temper is hotter mm-hmm. with us from new york it's the host of slate's daily podcast the gist with mike pasca it's mike pasca have you ever coached uh, youth sports mike uh-huh yeah
4: definitely uh i just want to know that i just want to note that stefan has asked bill o'brien's mom not to listen to this podcast I was a pretty he's, good coach. He's a Catholic. I was a pretty good coach. I had uh, uh what? I was,
3: your kids are like six years old. No, but dude. I was I was a
4: coach of uh, some inter camp games. And I, you know, now they're a little too young to coach in such uh, intense competitions as I did with Camp Laconda. And to this day, my number one regret is that uh, Peter Duretsky missed the take signal on a three one count in inter camp <laughs> softball. I still blame Duretsky for that. Duretsky's probably thirty two years old now. He's bowing his head in shame yep. as he listens. So to you, the you can take it out on your sons when yep. they start playing. My Some greatest, shows. my greatest camper, and he uh, he played up. He was with the under twelves, even though I think he was maybe even ten. Is uh, Fox football columnist Peter Schrager? Pretty fair <laughs> softball player. Schrager was in his own right, <laughs> and never
2: never blew a sign. Very coachable. That Schrager. Speaking of the children, <laughs> we always think of the children here on our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week. We'll be joined by our colleague Allison Benedict of the podcast Mom and Dad Are Fighting to talk about how to take your kids to sporting events, what to do, what not to do, who to bribe, what to eat, where to punch the mascot so marks don't show. Uh, to hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and other Slate shows, Panoply shows. Sign up for Slate Plus at Slate.com/slash plus. You can get a free two-week trial of the Slate Plus experience at Slate.com. Slash Hangup Plus.
3: I have a feeling Mike Pesca might have some tips.
2: Yeah. Do not tips and tricks go there with StubHub tickets on your phone.
4: <laughs> no, you can go children. there everywhere but Yankee <laughs> Stadium. Apparently.
2: All right, we'll save it for Slate Plus. All right. Last week, Virginia Tech defensive coordinator Bud Foster, great football coach name, great football coach assholery, upcoming in this paragraph said in an interview that the school was considering fining players for various infractions to make sure that guys are doing the right thing. The Richmond (laughs) Times-Dispatch subsequently published a story that seemed to establish that these fines were not theoretical. The piece included images of screens outside the Virginia Tech football player's lounge, showing a schedule of fines between $30 and $90 for missing a class, $5 for being late to study hall, $10 for missing breakfast. They always say breakfast is twice as important as study hall." $50 for a dirty locker, five times as important as missing breakfast, clean locker. $100 for an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty and a series of fines for wearing improper equipment. This was the worst infraction of all. Fine of up to $1,600 for a seventh (laughs) offense. Uh, An additional screen showed a total of $330 in fines that had already been assessed to five different players. Virginia Tech Athletic Director Witt Babcock, great athletic director name, wow. told the Times, Dispatch that the Fines, have now been discontinued 100%. He didn't know about them. We would never, ever do that. How, how could we? But Virginia Tech isn't just some rogue institution here. Cincinnati coach Tommy Tuberville, I mean, <laughs> yeah, wrong. it just doesn't I mean, stop. Just he said last week that he's considering withholding money from players for various infractions. The broader context here, uh, Mike... It's that the uh, college athletes are now being given cost of attendance stipends, money that covers the full cost of going to college, filling in the gaps of an athletic scholarship. The money ranges from $1,500 to around $7,000 per athlete, depending on the school. And we probably shouldn't be surprised that schools are trying to figure out a way to claw back that money. But I must say, I was actually surprised by this and not in like a, you know, shocked that there's gambling going on in the casino way. I was genuinely surprised that schools were trying to find their football players for improper equipment and you know missing breakfast. Should I not have been surprised by this, Pesca? I think not.
4: I think that the subtitle for every name that you mentioned or everyone associated with big-time college football is the balls on these guys. Except maybe Babs Whitcock, who is in charge of the female athletes at <laughs> Virginia Tech. Three. It's so funny. We won't even do clawbacks with. Wall Street executives who've clearly used the money. Let's institute the idea of clawbacks with our athletes. Hey, they got $3,000 in their pocket. That could be about $1,200 in our pockets. If they... So it's
2: beneficiaries of the Bernie madoff Ponzi scheme and the backup offensive tackle yeah, for Cincinnati. Yeah,
4: we're targeting the right people. <laughs> you know, I often use the phrase indentured servitude, and it's just so apt. If you look at the history of indentured servitude, they'd get paid a middle you know, amount, a couple hundred dollars, but there would be fines and fees for everything from a shirt to a bed. These athletes are indentured servants and the athletic directors are, I guess that they're trying to go about instilling discipline in the only, you know, one track mind way they know how, but man,
2: the balls on these guys. So the cost of attendance money, Stefan, is supposed to, as I said in the introduction, fill the gap that a scholarship doesn't fill and just, you know, not be like extra money or walking around money or spending money. But Andy Schwartz on Deadspin, the economist, had a good kind of history of how, you know, throughout the history of college sports, things that were pay have been redefined as not being pay. And the things that are pay are seen as as evil and things that are not pay are seen as okay. And this is a case where, um, you know, the athletic directors and coaches clearly Are seeing this as not just being part of a scholarship. They're seeing this as like frivolous, you know, extra money that spoiled players of the 21st century are getting. And it wasn't like it was back in my day.
3: Unless we can find a way to codify taking the money away, which the University of Cincinnati has. Um, basically writing it into the contract quote, unquote, for cost of attendance and legitimizing the ability for a school to take it away from an athlete if they don't meet certain standards. Um, And in this case, standards can be, you know, not finishing your scrambled eggs, for instance, not making your bed. I think room tidiness was one of the potential fines at Virginia Tech. So it's all semantics, right? I mean, this is the history of the NCAA. Student-athletes was a term coined to avoid labor laws. Um, scholarships were verboten for a short time, as Schwartz points out in this piece on Deadspin, until they were permitted. And once they were permitted, that was money that could be given to athletes in a legal manner. But anything outside of that was evil, was not acceptable. The NCAA is in the business of, of, of newspeak, basically. I mean, this is a total scheme to find ways around the reality here, which is not paying athletes a market rate for their services and i think we have to you have to start from that point that they whatever they're getting the extra 5 grand or 3 grand or 1500 bucks depending on the institution and depending on the sport and depending on the scholarship none of that approximates in the case anyway, of basketball and football players at the, at the big schools, um, the value that they generate for the university. And that's what schools are going to try to continue to get around. This is just bullshit coach posturing to, you know, to, to pretend that their, their jobs are about creating better human beings.
2: Mike, the kind of larger question here is, in the wake of the National Labor Relations Board's decision not to rule – on Northwestern football's unionization effort. Are college athletes in a place by virtue of even the attempt by Northwestern players to unionize to get kind of better conditions to get these cost of attendance stipends? Or is the stymieing of that effort, does it represent, you know, another victory by the NCAA to continue the system that you have termed aptly indentured servitude?
4: I think that the well the court case where the uh judge uh made this uh stipend the really it's not a stipend it's a cost of covering the actual cost versus the scholarship they receive, so it's what I would deem fairness um but anyway, that case was separate. I know. I know you know it was separate. In letter of the law, I don't really think that you know the. Even though we say things like, "Oh, the winds of change are blowing," I don't think that one greatly influenced the other. And I look at the Northwestern case. Everything I heard indicated that once they unsealed the athletes' votes, remember the players voted months ago, over a year ago. I don't think it was going to pass. So I think that would have been worse for people who are who advocate for less indentured servitude. That you know where you could say even the athletes didn't want this. Or at least that's what seems to come out. There is a scenario where, you know, you don't say that you're going to vote for a union until you have the union, and then you have those protections of the union. But I really Mm -hmm. think they were never going to get the union. And the other thing I would say is It seemed to me from reading the wording of this national board and everyone said the national labor relations board, not the regional board in Chicago that allowed, surprisingly allowed the union vote to go ahead. Everyone said, oh, they were going to approve it because they just looked at the partisan breakdown of the board. But they were kind of logical. They said, um, actually, they didn't say. They didn't give the nod to, yeah, you raise a good case. They just said, We've never done this before. This doesn't seem to be exactly what the NLRB is here for. They don't exactly to be similar to the types of people, i.e., employees where no one debates if they're employees. So we're going to not say you can't do this, but we're not going to rule on this. You know, they didn't say anything about the merits of the case. They just said that the athletes are never standing. And everything as far as that goes was logical. But there are other avenues for players to get a little more. And I think the biggest one is just public opinion, especially when those um, New Year's Eve games are going to draw such gigantic ratings. And there's going to be so many stories about, you know, how those kids maybe get $3,000. What if Vodtech makes it and a kid gets fined 10
2: bucks for missing his uh, eggs? Oh, they're not doing that anymore. Oh, yeah, of course. Babs Whitcock insisted that they, they would never, ever count in such a thing. But as strategy, Stefan, even though this is such penny annie bullshit, and I think not as evil as so many other things, like just the fact that, for mm-hmm. example, a coach can just dump you off scholarship for no reason, <laughs> or the fact that they can bar you from transferring to another school, they can control your past, present, and future. But this just looks so bad mm-hmm. that I think as strategy by you know, whether it's Cincinnati or whether it's Virginia Tech, It makes it look like – and maybe it even from a legal sense and not just from optics, it makes it look like these are employees because you can't fine a typical student for not going to study hall.
3: Well, Um, you're you're operating under the assumption that there was a consideration of the optics of imposing fines. This was pure football coach – Behavior. We got to get these guys in line. We're going to teach them a lesson. We're going to teach them how to be better people. The only way to do that is to find them, is to find ways to hit them where it hurts, right in the pocketbook, right in the breakfast nook. Right in
2: the breakfast nook. But if we're looking for a potential inflection point because – Like with FIFA, for example, I think that something is going to change. And just because it's been this way forever doesn't mean if we look in five or ten years that we're going to have the same status quo that we do now. Something like this that's just so baldly wrong and stupid, even if it is a relatively Mm -hmm. minor thing, I think that could sway public opinion. Although I'm sure if you look at a college football message board, people are like, good, like these guys are too entitled. And this, I think still, I think this is still like kind of an elite opinion, but as as things change, as we move into the future, I think it will be something small and stupid like this.
3: Well, small and stupid, though, can tip a court case. And if you don't think that labor attorney Jeff Kessler, who has represented unions in pro sports and now has taken on um, the college uh, anti-NCAA case, um, if you don't think that he is not finding a way to incorporate this into an argument you're a fool. I mean, this is absolutely awful. And I think what Cincinnati is doing in some ways is even worse, finding a way to stipulate this and put it because in a contract. Because there's an intentionality there. There's intentionality. Putting it into effectively a contract that you're asking a 17 or 18-year-old high school student to agree to before he goes off to spend 60 hours a week supporting your semi-professional football team.
2: Yeah, that kind of Gives a lie to the point you were making about how this is just some football coach popping off. Like that was an actual, like, administrative decision at the highest levels of the athletic and defended by the university, by the way. Coordinator popping off after practice, right? So, unintended consequences, I guess, you know, after the five power conferences, 65 schools kind of broke off. We talked about this. Last year, and they're and this know, is not, whom, by
3: the way, that the cost of attendance stipends Yeah, affects. not every, it's not every conferences.
2: Not every school is paying this, but you know, coaches like Nick Saban, because this is the kind of concern trolling that Nick Saban does. <laughs> you know, talked about he is he is a bit trollish. You know how cost of attendance can be manipulated, and it has. You know, I I mentioned the range fifteen hundred to seven thousand dollars. Not every school is paying the same. Amount of money here. And I think there's concern from Nick Saban that, you know, it would be used as a recruiting tool and maybe Ohio State's cost of attendance would be much higher than, you know, Michigan State's. And they would, you know, it would be ratcheted up. And oh my stars, how horrible that would be. That's why he
4: himself said, no, pay me less. Pay me less salary than everyone else.
2: Wait, he didn't say that. He said the opposite. (laughs) He said the exact opposite. But, Again, I guess I just didn't anticipate that, I guess the more money that you have going to players and what could be seen as a more direct way, because, you know, you know, money is money. There isn't anything else that's money and players are actually getting paid this amount, um, you know, in their pocket, I think monthly. And so... There are ways that that can be manipulated on on both ends, both in giving it to the players and in taking it away.
3: And, and, I, and I think what's really important here, too, to note is that what Cincinnati is doing by by stipulating that this is part of the agreement, though it's not entirely clear that they can get away with this um, based on other NCA rules. But what they have done effectively is say that we do want to find ways to reduce the cost of attendance that we are granting to these these students, these athletes. Are they students or athletes? I can't remember.
2: (laughs) We'll figure that out in next week's episode. It is now time for a word from our sponsor this week, DraftKings.com. There are only a few more preseason games to go before the regular season kickoff. You could start the season by winning $2 million in week one at DraftKings.com, America's favorite one-week fantasy football site. The Cincinnati and Virginia Tech football coaches could not find you. The money all goes directly to you. It's the biggest fantasy football contest ever. $10 million in prizes are up for grabs, including $2 million for first place and $1 million for second. That's a good amount of money for not winning. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a good contest, mm-hmm. but you can win a million dollars when you do not win. Well, Nick Saban they didn't win the championship last year. What did he get paid? That's called the Nick Saban Prize One week fantasy means no season long commitments It's fantasy football on demand Play where you want, when you want With the players you want Just pick your players, pile up the points And pick up your cash That's it Every game feels like the playoffs Even in week one And every broken tackle or spectacular catch Could take you closer to a $2 million prize Hurry to DraftKings.com now And use the promo code HANGUP To play free for a shot of $2 million And the week one Millionaire Maker That's free for $2 million. Enter hang-up for free entry now at DraftKings.com. That is DraftKings.com. The United States just finished the 2015 Track and Field World Championships in Beijing with six gold medals and 18 medals total, the lowest amount for the U.S. since 2003. Team USA's haul at the World Masters Athletics Championships in France was a bit larger, with the team earning 57 golds and 160 medals overall. The U.S. was led by 81-year-old Irene Obera, who won seven gold medals, earning first place in the 100 meters, 200 meters, 80-meter hurdles, 200-meter hurdles, long jump, and the 4x100 and 4x400 relays, with both of those relays being world record performances. Obera, a retired school teacher and administrator, has been setting age group world records since the 1970s, was the U.S. Masters Athlete of the Year in 2014, is a member of the USA Track and Field Masters Hall of Fame, and is the current world record holder for the 100, 200, 80 hurdles, 200 hurdles, all for women 80 and above. Irene, congratulations on your performances, and welcome to the show.
5: Well, thank you.
3: Irene, I think people's uh, perception of what it is like for someone in their seventies or eighties or, or even ninety to compete in track and field might not jibe with the reality here. How you know you're running times that are. You know, that I think that people in their 30s and 40s would be happy to run. Um, You've got the world record in the 100 is in the 16-second range. In the 200, it's about 35, 36 seconds. How do you do it? How do these athletes who compete in Masters events into their 70s and 80s uh, do it? What physically do you feel, and and how do you manage to sort of stay that fit to be able to to run and jump and throw?
5: I think that probably it's the mind because the older, every time I go into a new age group, I don't feel older. And I thought, oh, I would think they'd be older, but it feels the same or that age thing is not something that, you know, you dwell on and and it's a drag or anything because it it just seems like uh, you're happy. Oh, I'm the baby of my age. (laughs) I'm only 80. (laughs) You know, as opposed to those that are 84.
3: And you're also around And then
5: everybody trains, you know, depends. If you're a competitor and you're really, uh, you know, serious and not just casually out there, you know, just to to say you were in the meet. Um, You know, you train, you prepare, just as if you were 30 or 40. and uh, There's still people you're running against and competing against, and we all want the same thing. You know, the goal. So... It's just fun.
2: So, Irene, let's go back to the beginning of your running career. And in the 1950s, women didn't really have the same opportunities that they do today. This was before Title IX. Um, so you didn't run in high school or college. How did you get started in track and field?
5: Well, I was playing softball because that was my first love. I didn't know anything about track. And uh, this friend of mine, we were talking and she said that she was a champion in track. And, and I said, I was thinking, in track? Hmm, if she's a champion, I could be a champion. <laughs> so I started talking to her about it. And so I was at this PE conference, and so I was peeking in through the door, and I was next to some man I said, hmm. And he says, oh, are you interested in running track? I said, uh, yes. And so he says, well, I'll send you an a entry blank and so forth and so on. He turned out to be a principal at this elementary school, and he had some, some young kids. And so then we hooked up, and uh, I didn't know how to practice. I just, you know, ran with him. And then uh, he said, how about running on a relay? I said, I never ran on a relay. He says, all you have to do is get this stick and run like hell. I said, oh, I can do that. <laughs> And so uh and he didn't have a track, you know it was kind of like a um a pasture or something you know, right yeah, the California little field, and so I ran the hundred yeah, and then I won it uh oh while I was in the blocks, oh God, I was sweating, I thought, oh my God, this is a heck of a time to get stomach ache feeling you know sick and everything else, didn't realize I was so nervous about to die. And after the gun went off, next thing I knew I had won. So I thought, uh. And then this friend came up. She says, "I'll get you on the team." I said, "I don't know anything about running. I don't know if your coach wants to be on the team." Oh, don't worry. I'll get you on the team, Rain. So she introduced me. I was Roxy Anderson, who was a Olympic hurdler herself, and and you know she was Olympic coach, and you know she had quite a long list of credentials. So that's how I got started.
4: Do you? Obviously, there are great genetics at play. There's some luck in play and a lot of effort. But do you have any tips? Do you have any advice, either physical or mental, for people who want to be, no one's going to set the records you do, but people who want to be as active and spry and able to at least try to accomplish what you've accomplished into their 80s? Well, I
5: think the first thing, I mean, it's, really the person's attitude, and you have to believe in yourself and you have to want it, you know. And then um, after that, then you have to have a plan or work toward it because otherwise you're just daydreaming, you know, uh, about what you want to do. And uh, my sister, uh, I remember I was talking about, oh, I think I was second, you know, and I wanted to be first. And everything, she says, well, what's the first person, what is her training like? I said, I don't know. She said, don't you talk to her? Well, you better, well, you better find out. And I said, oh, all right, or something like She said, uh, let's forget it. You you, you don't want to run. Or you don't want to win or something. I said, I did, too. So she just, you know, she'd say something like that and leave you, you know, and she'd go, like, think about it kind of thing. So I did. So the next time I saw it, it was Colleen Mills from New Zealand, mm. and uh, she killed me in that. I would start out, and she'd kill me every time in that uh, four hundred meters. And um, uh, they had the hundred, and I didn't think anybody could beat me in the hundred. And somebody jumped the gun, and there was a thigh ahead of me. I thought, oh my god, you know. <laughs> and when I ended up, uh, let's see. I was third, and um, so I thought, well, I know I can do better than this, and then that's when I went back to drawing board, got serious, and, you know, started training and and everything.
2: How do you feel about being thought of as an inspiration or as a role model?
5: Uh, it was kind of a surprise at first, but uh, it seemed like every meet that I've uh been told this. In fact, what surprised me the most, I guess, was uh, the young men. You know, like thirty, twenty-five, whatever. They would say, "Oh, I want to be like you when I grow up." Mm-hmm. You know all this, and um, you know, the, which I took, you know, as a extremely nice compliment, and uh, one of the nicest ones too. I got see this year at the in France uh, some. Man and a woman came out of the stands and told, congratulated me and said, You know, you make the U.S. proud. You know, so I that was wonderful.
3: Irene, your coach, Alan Colling, told me that he thinks you could break 6,000 points in the heptathlon. The record is like 4,600. There are a lot of records left out there in the uh, 80-year-old division, high jump, long jump, triple jump, shot put. Do you have your eye on those? Do you want to keep competing? What What will motivate well, there, you to, to stay Well, running?
5: you know, I like challenges, and it, it, is, it is certainly a challenge. So it was that pentathlon I did the first time, but... I don't mind because it's fun to learn new events. I would have to, you know, learn some new events like javelin and get my steps on the long jump because I don't really have any steps. I just run and jump. <laughs> and, um, you know, there it would take a lot of work. But it is on my mind. So who knows what the future holds.
2: All right, well, we hope to... See you uh, competing for many years to come, Irene. Thank you so much, and congratulations again on all your accomplishments.
5: Well, you're so very welcome, and thank you, gentlemen.
2: Irene Obera is a member of the USA Track and Field Masters Hall of Fame and was the U.S. Masters Athlete of the Year in 2014. Our last topic of the day is the now venerable HBO NFL reality series Hard Knocks. The 10th edition is underway and is a great man named Stefoon Fatsis once wrote, it is the best behind-the-scenes examination of football's summer ritual that we've ever seen on a screen or could ever hope to see. A month of struggle, exhilaration, and anxiety crafted into five 50-minute packages. It's terrific entertainment, but it's not journalism. This year's version, you remember writing that? I do. I, do. Uh, I remember writing "the" is the, the <laughs> part of that sentence I really remember writing. This year's version features the Texans of Houston, and it's lived up to that description. Uh, it's got the usual winning hard knocks formula of NFL films: bombast, coaches cursing a lot, and humanizing the players who are on the fringes of NFL rosters. We're going to play a clip now, which is the very first scene of the very first episode, and is maybe the hard knockiest moment that ever knocked. Here we go.
1: Let's be honest with each other. This place has no respect in the league, just so you guys are all aware of that. This organization is 96-126, 30 games below five hundred. Turn your TV on. Nobody talks about the Houston Texans because no one thinks we're going to win. And the disrespect that they show our quarterbacks, I'm tired of that too. Because both those kids can play. They just need a chance, and one of them's going to get it. All right? Enough is enough. Every player that's out there, all 90 players, are players that I wanted for the 2015 season. When you fucking guys show up to practice tomorrow, they better be ready to fucking go.
2: And we're off to another season of Hard Knocks. That really is quintessential. And in like 45, 50 seconds captures the whole series. That was Houston Texans head coach Bill O'Brien. You have the coach saying fuck and you have the swelling music coming in and it kind of advertises that this is the inside view. Like, you're not going to hear a coach saying fuck on, you know, NFL primetime on ESPN and it's an effective formula Stefan
3: it is and I think it, that, that opening segment does more it also reminds you that NFL coaches are full of their own bombast they want players to go into their jobs completely paranoid about whether they're going to have a job once training camp is over and they they want to reduce them to shit to try to build them up I mean this is a, a time-honored uh, practice in uh, in football coaching so really o'brien has it all going for him right from the get-go here
4: i couldn't take being a football player not because of the stuff we normally take and i was a football player but maybe i was you know 13 or 14 by the time my knee wound up on the other side of my body i i just like as a sentient person with logic skills Every day would be a struggle not mm-hmm. to yell, what you're saying is hooey. We got two quarterbacks and they deserve respect, and one of them's going to get a chance. So there the was... other guy's getting screwed, is what you're saying. Or this organization is 60 and 351. What the fuck could I do about that? Could I go back in time to when I was 11 and win some games for the crappy Houston Texans of yore? Coach, you are not inspiring me at all. You're telling me the team is terrible, there's nothing we can do. And one of our quarterbacks still isn't going to get a right chance. You suck.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe my bar is just so low. You talk a lot about the asshole coach as a prototype Mm -hmm. in the NFL. But I didn't find O'Brien to
3: be that much of an asshole. Oh, my God. I mean, I warmed up a tiny bit in episode three when he actually seems to be genuinely congratulating a player for a play he made during a preseason game who he had ridden and berated constantly in the previous episode. But Jesus, we start the first episode with O'Brien quizzing players. Oh, yeah, that was bad. Come on. That is another sort of tried and true. Bill O'Brien hasn't said one thing, Mike, that makes any sense in the program so far, nothing that is innovative, nothing that is remotely inspiring, nothing that a sentient player, which is most of these guys mm-hmm. would respond to in a positive way. yeah maybe he that's is, what he is he is total it, it is all cliche and bombast.
4: Maybe this is why the NFL really doesn't care about brain injuries because the less these players can think logically, the more likely they'll be able to follow these coaches. Yeah, in past seasons, I do think that they have fleshed out the coach. I mean, I was I was on the Rex Ryan train to begin with but I do think a lot of America mm-hmm. learned to like him more from uh, hard knocks than mm-hmm. how he was presented in other forms of media. I mean, you know, you could hate Rex Ryan all you want but there's certainly an endearing side and I think the market showed that he got a lot of endorsements and whatever, off of Hard Knocks. So, and I I do think a lot of the other coaches that have been portrayed in Hard Knocks, uh, it's helped their portrayals flesh them out. Now, I am, as sophisticated a viewer, As a sophisticated viewer, I recognize you could edit this, however, but I don't think that they would edit it to take out the coach being humane or insightful or kind of interesting. I don't think O'Brien comes off terribly, but compared to other coaches that you've seen where you like them more, compared to any subject of a documentary, the head coach is always going to be a subject. Now, Hard Knocks, Houston Texans edition, does have some great characters. They always find the great characters. And J.J. Watt and Vince Wilfork, for instance, are great characters. The quarterback is a gaping morass of nothingness, which mm-hmm. is a problem with this show. But O'Brien, compared to other hard-knock coaches, there's not a lot of there there.
2: I feel like I need to go back and defend my claim that he's not an asshole, which has been assailed by all comers. I think that his insight over a replacement coach, his Iorc, is zero. I think he is average. I think that when you're talking about players being sentient, If I was a player in that locker room, I think nothing that I heard would be particularly insightful, but I would just be able to tune everything out. It seems totally average, normal NFL head coach, and I think there's some value and depicting that, but I don't think he's any worse than oh my God, any your other standards
3: coach. are like at the bottom of Death Valley. Josh. I
2: said that my standards were low and there the beginning. is
3: room for coaches to be intelligent and thoughtful and compassionate and inspirational in ways that don't involve performing every NFL trope cliche <laughs> coach. You didn't, it didn't humanize
2: him when he said, I fucking love Rick Ross.
3: Players eat that shit up. <laughs> <laughs> the coach, the white coach likes Rick Ross. Ah, oh, that's a laugh, right? Yeah. And, when, and when he ran the players through media training, oh, that was really
2: great. All right, fine. I've been I've been browbeaten. Let's talk about J.J. Watt. And I've got another Let's... clip queued up here. This was a inspirational moment. If Bill O'Brien cannot provide them, then J.J. Watt, defensive lineman, hero, can.
4: Hey, the philosophy of this fucking squad is off the field, we're good-ass dudes. We're nice fucking guys. We do the right thing. On the field, when you step on the field, you're the baddest fucker on the planet. And together, we're the baddest fucking team on the planet. And that's the way we're going to attack every fucking day. I don't care who walks into our building. I don't care whose building we walk into. We're the baddest fuckers out there. Texans on three. One, two, three.
3: Texas. J.J. Watt, future NFL football coach.
2: Off the field, we're good as dudes is maybe my favorite <laughs> phrase of the of the year. I find J.J. Watt unquestionably, probably the best player in the NFL, voted by his peers as the best player, just unbelievably good at football. I find him hilarious just as the total embodiment of everything that an athlete is quote unquote supposed to be and supposed to do. Like he plays the game the right way more than Derek Jeter, like a million times more than Derek Jeter. And I finally figured out who the comp is to J.J. Watt. It's Hulk Hogan.
3: I was just going to say, he's like a WWE star. Say
2: your prayers, eat your vitamins, believe in yourself, be true to your country, be a real American. That is J.J. Watt. And I just cannot get enough of it. He just makes me laugh so much.
3: Can I, before Mike, I turn the microphone over to you because I know you have something to say about J.J. Watt. The two poles of J.J. Watt, I think, epitomize why he is the greatest living athlete. One, catching footballs spun out of a jugs gun at about 100 miles an hour from four feet away with one hand, and two, this exchange that J.J. Watt and Vince Wilfork have about meals.
2: I love breakfast. Breakfast is the best. Brunch? Brunch is my favorite meal of all time. Brunch Brunch is the greatest thing in the world. I can pass on it. Like dinner is whatever. Yeah. Dinner is, yeah. But brunch? Breakfast and brunch. You don't mess around with breakfast. Oh. I can eat breakfast three meals a day. No oh problem. yeah, absolutely.
4: So I've, there's scarcely ever existed a human being who's so easily cast. I mean, this is why Channing Tatum walks the planet to be J J Watt in the J J Watt movie, and I compare him to Gronkowski because he's got a lot of Gronkism in it. But I do think we imbue Gronkowski with some magical qualities. He really is just an athletic doofus, whereas J.J. Watt transcends doofus, Mm -hmm. and he also transcends athleticism, mere athleticism. It would seem, and this is why they line him up at all these different positions, I think maybe not cornerback, but I think Literally, if you give this guy a year, literally, he could play every position. I don't know on an NFL level, but he could play every position on a Division One level. I don't know if he has the pure speed for quarterback. You know, he'd have to get his body He's in. He's got the corner. arm. Did
3: you see him throw the ball into, like, the third deck? Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. I said quarterback.
4: I meant cornerback. I don't know if he has the pure – but I, I, he could – Kill someone at safety. He could obviously play anything on the line. He could slip back into linebacker really easily. He could catch the ball. He's so big and strong. He could block. He's amazing. And that's one of the great things about football that there are all these different positions. And I've never seen a football player as good as as good at hockey. He's legitimately very good at hockey, which is weird. Now I was saying to myself, how the hell did he go eleventh in the draft? Actually, that draft was pretty good. Cam Newton, Von Miller, uh, A.J. Green, Patrick Peterson. Marcel Darius Julio Jones the only guy Jake Locker didn't work out in fact out of football but you know you take a shot at quarterback so the only two guys who went before him who weren't you know all pros are Blaine Gabbert and Jake Locker and I am i think Blaine could turn it around although he'll never be as interesting as J.J. Watt
2: he cannot turn it around he
4: can't <laughs> We're no. done with Blaine Gabbert
2: <laughs> I'm done with him yeah you're probably right the persona that he's crafted is, is even though everything that you've said is true and he's just a great athlete on he's just on like a crazy plane of you know all all world athleticism mm-hmm. the persona that he's crafted still to me is by far better than anything that he does on the field like the stuff about his 9000 calorie a day diet and how his problem was that he wasn't including enough cheat meals and so now he started just to eat more bacon and how he pulled over to the side of the road when he saw youth football players last year and just talk to them about how he loved how they embraced the purity of the game. I just cannot get enough of this, like everybody's all-American yeah. superhero. Yeah, it's
3: superhero. A lot. A I lot can't of... get enough of Vince Wilfork sanding his foot. <laughs> well, the funny also. fat
4: the funny fat man is a trope in Hard Knocks, and mm-hmm. he's he's among the best of them.
3: He is. Yeah. he really is. And his wife's and, and, great. <laughs> and, and finally, I think what Hard Knocks does for me is reinforce. Some real truths about the NFL. Again, it's not journalism. And the reason I said that in that piece I wrote is that you're not going to hear players complain about what dicks the coaches are, which they did when I talked to them. They're not, you're not going to hear players complain about how useless the grind is and how they're treated like kindergartners. And you're not going to get much depth into their characters. But what you are going to get is a reinforcement that In the NFL, the coach really is and the coaching staff really are assholes and they are paternalistic jerks. And the players are actually intelligent, humorous, caring, carefree people. And they really do like playing football, that they hate all the bullshit associated with football. And I know I've made this argument before, but you have to read between the lines in Hard Knocks. But it is all there. The reality of the NFL is there in this show.
4: I would say that, you know what else isn't journalism sometimes is what we call journalism. Because Hard Knocks trades access, unbelievable, Mm -hmm. great access, beautiful access, for a crafted story. But so do journalists. Um, Sometimes you have to, sometimes it's a consequence of the players themselves aren't dishing all they. would like to maybe until the end of the season or they go off the record but trading access for honesty happens all the time and I think at least on hard knocks I don't know if it's honesty that we get but the access is so good the one thing I would say is in Nicky um, Davidoff's book Collision Low Crossers that is sort of the counterpoint to your book where he fleshes out the coaching staff and I don't think coaches are always jerks. I mean, I think sometimes players have problems, and sometimes mm-hmm. coaches are really well-intentioned and, in fact, brilliant, you know? So there exists in all the levels, I don't think that... I don't know. I don't think in and general... And I'm not, I'm not suggesting, like, that hard knocks should be brush. journalism,
3: yeah. because th- what NFL does and does so well is create this this larger-than-life drama and makes the NFL feel like something huge and important, and it does it with wonderful cinematography, and it does it with incredibly creative and on deadline, by the way, editing, and it does it with... Swelling music. Swelling music and great characters.
2: All right, now it is time for Afterballs, and you may be wondering where exactly in this galaxy of ours J.J. Watt came from. I might have called him interplanetary, galactic. You might be surprised to learn... That he was born on our planet, Earth, Hmm. in the humble village of Pewaukee in crucial Waukesha County, Wisconsin. You thought that Waukesha County was crucial because of its role in elections. It's actually crucial because it is where J.J. Watt is from. If you want to attend the famous Pewaukee Lake Water Ski Show, you only have two more opportunities to do so on September 3rd and Labor Day, September 7th. The theme this year is Live from Pewaukee. It's Thursday Night Live. And Wayne Campbell and Hans and Franz, among others, are on the poster. And that is this week's Pewaukee community calendar. Mike, what is your Pewaukee?
4: My Pewaukee is a couple, maybe a couple weeks ago, I shared this segment to just listeners. But, you know, it's so hang-up and listenable that I wanted to talk about Marco Rubio, Mrs. Rubio, and... All the other non Rubio candidates. Marco Rubio's wife, do you know what she you know what her distinction is among the candidates' wives, guys?
2: She is a Miami Dolphins cheerleader. She is a oh. Miami Dolphins cheerleader. And here
4: I take note of that. A couple days ago, I was reading the Wall Street Journal. The article was headlined, Wall Street Wives Lend a Hand to Republicans, Cruz and Christie. And it was about how Mary Pat Christie and Heidi Cruz work or worked on Wall Street. And it detailed some of the other ties that other candidates have to Wall Street, like Kasich and Jeb worked on Wall Street, worked for Wall Street firms. Then there was this paragraph listing a few political spouses. All right. Among Democrats, former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley's wife, Katie, is a Baltimore City District court judge, and former President Bill Clinton could become the nation's first husband. Among Republicans, Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal's wife is a chemical engineer, while Florida Senator Marco Rubio's wife is a former Miami Dolphins cheerleader. Whoa, 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 whoa. So we got, they're listing the spouses, judge, engineer, president of the United States, cheerleader. Now, I know you can only buy one of those professions in Barbie form and it ain't chemical engineer, but Marco Rubio married a Miami Dolphins cheerleader? Indeed, Marco Rubio did. I just got to say this. Marrying a cheerleader does show commitment to the team. But if he really wants to impress me as a real Dolphins fan, I say Marco Rubio has to marry T.D., the seven-foot dolphin mascot who gallivants across the stadium. Sure, it would confirm Rick Santorum's worst fears, but I think the move would get the Washington Post to amend their headline from likely to clearly biggest Dolphins fan ever to run
2: for president. That was an excellent gist segment. I like that gist segment. Thank you. It might be the most Miami Dolphins centric gist segment in the last week of the gist that's right
4: although remember when i had Zonkafest fest 08 that was a while ago yeah the last
2: weekend yeah. <laughs> stefan what is your piwaki
3: i was in the library of congress last week reading about john mcgraw mcgraw as you might know was a mythic figure in baseball in the early 20th century Between 1902 and 1932, he managed the New York Giants to 10 National League pennants and three World Series titles. He was a proto-tactician who stressed base running and pitch calling, a pioneer in the use of pinch hitters and relief pitchers. He was a hard-ass with his players. Umpires ejected him 118 times. McGraw eats gunpowder every morning for breakfast, one of his coaches said, and washes it down with warm blood. He associated with gamblers— including the guy who helped fix the 1919 World Series.
2: Can I make you pause there for a second? Mm-hmm. Warm blood is more manly than, J. J. Chilled, than chilled blood, right? Yeah. And then J.J. Watt. What about, like, hot blood? Why warm? That was my
4: favorite Rod Stewart song. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> All right, you can continue. Thank you. McGraw left most of the edgier stuff out of his autobiography, My 30 Years in Baseball. The book was published in 1923 at the peak of his managerial prowess. It's mostly didactic, often defensive, occasionally scolding. McGraw tells uncompassionate stories about dissolute players like Giants pitcher Bugs Raymond, who drank himself out of baseball, and reveals a serious hard-on for the new commissioner, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis. But he does address some critical questions about the modern game, including one posited at the top of chapter 49. Chapter 49. Chapters are short. Should a ball player marry? McGraw says fans want to know. Many times, he writes, I've been in a quandary over that angle of baseball. I have even feared to discuss it in private, let alone in the newspaper. McGraw then spends five pages discussing this angle in a book. Let's dive right in. Quote, Very few ball players are ever as valuable to a team the first year they are married as they are before or after. When a young fellow gets it into his head to get married, there is no stopping him. He thinks of nothing else. Naturally, he and his wife think that their marriage is the most important thing in the world. In working out their early problems, they forget all about baseball. As a result, the young fellow's zest is gone. It takes a full year for him to get down to business and concentrate his mind on the game i have known young bridegrooms on the bench to forget whether there were men on base or not sometimes they are not even particular whether there are one or two outs they are thinking about the new apartment and that new furniture that fancy gas range and so on it is a beautiful state of bliss but take it from me a young man in that state of mind doesn't win many ball games. Yes, they were thinking about that fancy gas range. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. So McGraw offers the gals some helpful tips on how to assist their besotted and bestirred bridegrooms. I have had brides come to me and ask what kind of food they ought to prepare for their husbands. Helpful, right? One new wife could see the polo ground scoreboard with binoculars from their apartment. If the Giants were losing, she'd start to make his favorite dish, corned beef and cabbage. Upon his arrival at home, the grouch of defeat would disappear. Also helpful. Not so helpful, the foolish wives and sweethearts who sit in the stands and yell out endearing encouragement to their husbands. You can imagine the feelings of a player when he leaves the bench to go to bat at a critical moment and suddenly hears a soprano voice from the stands scream out, there goes my dearie. (laughs) (laughs) McGraw's got some timeless advice for players. Don't marry some girl who really seeks the limelight more than the love of the young fellow. Chris Benson totally should have read my 30 years in baseball. And for managers, don't let spouses travel with the team. A lot of wives, when thrown together in such close association, are bound to talk and gossip over what they have heard But in some cases, the traveling spouse might be necessary. Some harem-scarum young fellows can be controlled by nobody but their wives. In conclusion, John McGraw believes that marriage is good for some baseball players, not good for others. And in so doing, he does not answer the question he asked at the start of Chapter 49. Quote, nobody is going to trap me into saying whether I think ballplayers should be married or not. End quote.
2: Well... Thank heavens. you got to have that warm blood that you drink for breakfast rushing to the right organ. That's nope. my lesson. Thanks That's what's happening. For all you players.
4: I don't know if young bridegrooms are good for baseball, but I've looked up the record of the Brooklyn bridegrooms. They were the Brooklyn bridegrooms from 88 to 90 mm-hmm. and uh, came in first two out of those three seasons. Then they became the Brooklyn grooms, uh, had a losing season, but then enjoyed Four straight winning seasons were reconstituted as the bridegrooms and never won again.
0: Hmm.
3: See? No bride. Win. Bride. Lose. Josh, what's your Pikachu? Keep it, (laughs) Paul? Pewaukee.
2: Pewaukee. Pikachu. Got to catch them all. The greatest slash dumbest sports story of last week was Seattle Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson's claim in a Rolling Stone profile that he recovered from a concussion by drinking something called Reliant Recovery Water, a beverage that features (laughs) nano-bubbles. It got even better when Wilson tried to walk back his claim by saying, I didn't have a head injury, but what I was trying to say is I think it helped prevent it. Okay. I think your brain consists of like 75, 80% water. So I think that just being hydrated, drinking the recovery water really does help. Makes sense. Now, that is an athlete who's committed to touting the healing powers of beverages. Reliant Recovery Water, drink some today. This sort of pitch may sound eerily familiar to Seattle sports fans because the Emerald City was home to an athlete who was perhaps the most persistent liquid pitchman in sports history and, as far as I can tell, was never compensated for it. He just did it for the love of the liquid. That man was Michael Cage. He played for the Sonics from 88 to 94, Cage was in the NBA for 15 years. He once led the league in rebounds per game one season. He played in 736 consecutive games. He holds the all-time record for most three-pointers attempted, 25, without ever making one in the NBA. He had an amazing jerry curl, and he constantly evangelized about the healing powers of juice. Cleveland Plain Dealer, October 94. It's no accident that Cage has 7% body fat. I juice a lot, he said. American Fitness, January 1995, and a story amazingly headlined, Pulp Fixins. (laughs) Star forward Michael Cage says juicing helped him deal better with the physical and mental stress inherent in professional basketball. I've noticed I'm much more energetic, says Cage. Cleveland Plain Dealer, January 1995. Cavaliers forward Michael Cage, who introduced his coaches and teammates to the virtues of juicing, will have enough juicers in town this week to have a mini-convention. When the Supersonics visit Gondarino on Wednesday, Cage, who began using a juicer to mix nutritional drinks five years ago while playing in Seattle, said that it was a health regimen that the entire team practiced. Seattle Times, January 1995. Michael Cage gave each teammate a juice man juicer juicer for Christmas. Cleveland Plain Dealer, December 1995. Michael Cage swears by his diet of fruit juice concoctions. January 1996, Cleveland Plain Dealer. He should bottle and sell whatever is in the juice he drinks. USA Today, March 1996. Cage says his 547 game streak is a matter of old-fashioned work ethic. He's not a vegetarian, but he stays away from red meat and drinks... Juice? Plenty of juices. The juices increase my metabolism and immune system, he he says. A few months later, Philly Inquirer, I was juicing a long time ago, he said, warming to talking about a lifestyle that sees vegetables and fruit pulped in vast quantities. I travel with a juicer. I'll be juicing for these guys before it's over. All right, there's some more Boston Globe, June 97, October 97. Let's move forward to Bergen Record, January 1998. Michael Cage is in his first year as a NET, so he hasn't been too bold about preaching his gospel of juicing as a way of life. That is about to change, however. I figure at about the halfway mark, I'll give out my annual newsletter on what's going on with my juicing, said the Nets Backup Center, who for years has remained healthy. By using a blender to make all kinds of fruit and vegetable juices.
3: (laughs) This is like one man's growing (laughs) obsession. I hate to hear how this is going to end. I'm worried for Michael Cage.
2: (laughs) I hope that his juice newsletter is in Springfield, enshrined in the Basketball Hall of Fame. I know some injuries are unavoidable, but a lot of guys on this team have been sick, too. Now I turn 36 in two weeks, and I just keep rolling, Cage said. Take right now, when New Jersey is at the height of its flu season. I mix up a lot of vitamin C-rich drinks, orange and apple juice, pineapple orange, like that. That keeps the immune system going, adds Cage, who doesn't remember the last time he had the flu. But here, Stefan, you anticipated it. Here's where our story takes a dramatic turn. Dark turn. Bergen Record, January 2000. From 1984 to 1998, Michael Cage was such an NBA Iron Man that it seemed as if he would play forever. But back spasms this season have twice forced Cage to five-game stints on the injured list, and he repeatedly has expressed surprise at the deterioration of his physical skills. The six-foot-nine, 250-pound fitness fanatic, well known around the league for his devotion to juicing and for his enthusiasm in trying to recruit other players to his regimen, even missed two games this season with the flu. Dark. It is dark. It's the darkest timeline. But has Seth Cage... Davis ever tweeted that he drinks the juice? <laughs> it's a missed opportunity, if not. Cage retired after that 2000 season. He's back in the NBA now as a TV analyst for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Before his time with the Thunder, he called games for the Memphis Grizzlies. 2005 Grizzlies media guide. Michael and wife Jody have three kids, Michael Jr., Sydney, and Alexis. Cage is an avid fresh fruit and vegetable juicer. Even in his stand as a broadcaster, still touting the juice, I could not find any evidence that he ever converted this into an endorsement, which boggles the mind. I mean, Juice Me. Man. What about the Juice Man That juicer? was his nickname, was the Juice Man. Like, there were t-shirts and... I meant the
3: company. What about the Juice Man juicer? The Michael Cage line.
2: If he had the same commitment that Russell Wilson does Uncage to touting your beverages, pulp. if there's no... If uh, Russell Wilson shows up with a jerry curl, we know... <laughs> We know what's going on. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at slate.com. Also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Subscribe to our newsletter about juicing at facebook.com slash stefan's juicing newsletter harum starum juicing our producer is zach dinerstein our managing producer is joel meyer the executive producer of slates podcast is andy bowers hang up and listen as part of the panoply network check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply remember zelmo beatty and thanks for listening